Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, March 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, lots of new developments on the whistleblower front thanks to this year's budget bill. Plus, cloud computing is great until you can't connect. Then what? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, if you love something, let it go, but only for six months to a year. That's kind of what the Office of Personnel Management is telling agencies to do with their cybersecurity employees. An upcoming rotational program will give federal cyber employees the option to temporarily work at another agency. OPM says the program can help with staff retention at a time when it's becoming increasingly difficult to recruit IT people. Here with details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And how will this work exactly, Drew? So the guidance from OPM essentially says that agencies will be able to offer different positions within their own staff for other cyber employees to look at and apply for if they're interested It's a completely optional program, and as you mentioned, it will last between six months and one year. That's the amount of time that a cyber employee can spend at another agency, and during that time, they'll get to develop new skills, OPM says, and they'll get to then bring those back to their home agency afterward. All of the listings for the program, it's called the Federal Rotational Cyber Workforce Program, and those will be housed on Open Opportunities, that's a section of USA Jobs for Internal Positions. Interesting. So this program came from whose head? Where did this generate? So this came from legislation that President Biden signed in June of last year called the Federal Rotational Cyber Workforce Program Act. And now with the new guidance from OPM, the program is really going to be taking off. It's going to start this November for government-wide announcements for these different types of positions. There will be this annual window when agencies can post openings, but they'll also have the flexibility to post other openings throughout the year. This will go on until June of 2027, and that's when the program expires unless Congress decides to extend it at that point. And this also aligns with a lot of other things that have been going on with cybersecurity. There was the National Cybersecurity Strategy from the White House recently. And it also builds off work from previous administrations, both the Obama and Trump administrations, introduced similar initiatives for rotational opportunities for cyber federal employees. And other agencies like DHS and the Defense Department, they are already doing these kinds of programs. So this is kind of expanding it for a more government-wide approach. And I guess one of the beauties of it is that you could rotate as an employee or you could have someone rotate to your agency, but they physically don't have to go anywhere with everybody teleworking. Right. That could be another benefit of the program as well. OPM says also generally this this is kind of a two-way street. You have employees getting the skills, getting career development and different opportunities while keeping their same job. And agencies, on the other hand, will see hopefully better staff retention and recruitment, and they'll be able to have, you know, skills 
those new skills that the employees develop elsewhere come back to their own agency after after the rotation ends. And will there be some kind of a matching program, almost like med students? We have the opening, I want to go somewhere, and that's how it'll work? Yeah, it's going to be a matter of each individual agency gets to choose which positions become available and employees can apply. They can see those listings and apply for them when they come up. And what are some of the challenges this is trying to fix, just getting people in the first place into government and then once they're in, getting them to stay? That is a a big part of it. I think that the cybersecurity workforce specifically has a lot of challenges for the federal workforce. We know that OPM says that cybersecurity is still a government-wide skills gap for agencies. It's That can mean either a lack of employees or there maybe are employees, but they don't have the right skills. And that's something that is continuing to be a struggle for agencies. So I think the hope is here, the goal is to, to try to improve some of those issues that are going on. There was also a recent report from the Government Accountability Office that showed that 60% of its recommendations to try to fix federal cybersecurity are still open. So that means they haven't really been addressed in government. And one of those recommendations was to, you know, try to fix the cybersecurity workforce specifically. And they're saying that there should be a government-wide workforce plan and a leadership team to try to work through some of that. But it is, as I said, still a really ongoing challenge here. I guess another challenge I'm thinking would be if you have a fully filled out federal workforce of cybersecurity people, you know, a full complement of the of the cyber people you need, do you want to give them up to some agency that can't hire people and all of a sudden my best folks are, hey, guess what? I'm going to go over there for six months. Yeah, that that is a good question. And again, this is a voluntary program, so it's not going to be for maybe every position, but maybe each agency will just have a couple of openings. Not everyone needs to be a part of this, but the idea is to help with recruitment and, and building skills. And, you know, there are a lot of openings in cyber for the federal workforce as well. There's about uh, 755,000 open cyber jobs nationwide right now, and more than 45,000 of those are within the public sector. So they are having a problem bringing people into this to this industry. And there's also the issue if you have someone that's good and they want to spread their wings or try to bring their skills to another agency, the moment you stand in their way is the moment you've lost them anyway. So you might as well let people go, as we said at the top. You know, if you love it, let it go, because somehow the karma will reflect back onto your agency, I think. That is the goal here, to take agencies who are having trouble maybe with their retention of cyber employees and just trying to encourage them to stay, show them that there are other ways to develop skills. The legislation behind this was bipartisan. It's something we've seen from administrations of both parties. So I think this is you know, a a goal or a way that is generally received pretty positively. And do we know yet whether someone could physically relocate? I mean, it's only six months, but suppose you could time it so that you can move out to, say, Grand Junction for the skiing and hiking season and then back to Arizona, you know, later on when you go back to your home job. Yeah, there's a lot of details from OPM and the guidance about how this program is exactly going to work. And you know, I think it's it's going to be up to the agencies to determine how, how exactly that's going to 
that's going to happen. Yeah, the Southwest in the winter, you know, and New England in the summer or something <laughs> is what I would go for if I was a cyber person. All right, and there's some other things going on on Capitol Hill to try to get at this workforce issue in cyber. Yeah, there is another bill called the Civilian Cybersecurity Reserve Act that was reintroduced just this week by Senators Jackie Rosen and Marsha Blackburn. It's bipartisan legislation that would essentially focus on the cyber staffs for the Defense Department and the Department of Homeland Security. The idea is to have this reserve cyber staff in the civilian federal workforce where agencies can activate those employees during large-scale cyber incidents that we've seen growing over the past couple of years. Interesting. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Great story. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, cloud computing is great until you can't connect. Then what? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. U.S. Special Operations Command, no less than any other Defense Department component, is pushing aggressively into cloud computing. But it's also anticipating situations where warfighters may not have connectivity to the cloud. I discussed this with SOCOM's Chief Technology Officer, Dr. Mark Taylor. So as it is today, uh, when we prosecute war or do not war, we're normally doing those not in Malibu or Times Square or someplace nice. We're normally doing it in some austere part of the world that's not necessarily hospitable. Usually they're not happy that we're there or they tolerate us while we are. And so, again, usually the places that we would, would do our missions are also not uh, the best infrastructures, right? Uh, like a desert or some crazy jungle, you know, places that don't natively have good connectivity. So the key is to try to figure out what services you need and then take those services with you. And so we're all about practicality. For example, you see that I'm sharing an office with the chief engineer, Special Operations Command, CW5 Ryland Knight. So how do how do you take the, the cloud with you? Well, uh, there are a number of ways to do that. A lot of the services that we uh, utilize that we might build in the cloud, if it's especially if it's IaaS or some kind of PaaS service, is we look at how do we gain the efficiencies of that technology and make it portable. Um, so everyone's heard of probably by this time over the last 20 years about virtual machines, a, a VM. How do I trick a part of the computer into thinking that it's its own computer? Another step beyond that is containerization. How do I take a container and basically containerize an application or a system or an experience, right? How do I containerize X amount of data with Y amount of compute and Z amount of front end or IO capability and make that portable so that I can put it on a server, on a laptop, on a phone, 
in the cloud, I can make that experience portable. So, you know, I think that using technologies like this help us get after it. In some places in corporate America, that sounds like old hat. In some of the bowels of the government, that might seem like witchcraft. But, you know, those are some of the things that we would look at is how do we take this experience that we might currently be utilizing for the sake of efficiency, of speed, of scale, of lower cost, and put all this this hard question into the cloud and it will gonculate an answer and I get my answer and based off of the answer, I make a decision on if I'm going to do A or I'm going to do B. Well, now imagine taking that same capability. Do I need it to be as powerful as the mighty gonculator or can I have the mini gonculator, right? And just how do I take that, make it as an economy of scale and now put it into a container and put it on a smaller platform such as a smaller device that I can take with me. And now I have that capability with me wherever I go. And so again, that should not be rocket science to anybody in modern day time, but essentially that those are some of the things that, that we look at. Now, why do we do that? Because we have the challenges of if I have to have a connection all the way back to the mothership, I might not get there or it might be a bad experience or I might not be able to get there at all. Uh, I'm, I might never be able to, to connect or never have that hope. So these are some of the, th- the things that we have really invested in, continue to invest in. We continue to work with our cloud service providers to, to look at ways to make that easy. So if there's service X that I like from cloud provider Y, that I could then take it as container Z and move forward with my time. So hopefully that makes sense. Yes, I think there might be people that call it witchcraft. Some people call it edge computing in a disconnected environment. And then as to follow up on that, then given the learnings that could happen with the junior level, if you will, calculating engine that that is disconnected, but nevertheless useful in the field, this container with all the resources for that instance, then you can always resynchronize afterwards when there is connectivity and whatever new learnings or new data might have been garnered in that operation, then can be uploaded to uh, strengthen your algorithms for the next time. Yeah, I mean, that. That's it in a nutshell. And a great part about just the whole edge computing, people think that you go to the cloud and like you stay there and that's it. And it's a done deal. And just the reality is, is we're, you know, multi-cloud for choice, right? Very few places would have the money to put the app in Azure, AWS, and Google all at the same time. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if there was a widget or, you know, system or service that is so mission critical to our, to us, national security, whatever. Yeah, you, you could pay to do that. Um, that's It's not a technical problem at all. It's a financial cost, political, whatever, you know, the constraint may be. Reason, I mean, you know, the reality, you know, normally you would put something in Cloud X and it normally stays there. And you would probably only move it if there was a compelling need, some significant emotional event. Um, but outside of that, you normally uh, keep things uh, where they are. Now, people think that when you come in to a SOCOM or a DOD that, you know, there's a new sheriff in town, we're trying to get things to the cloud, we're going to try to extract more value out of it so that it's not this science project, right? It's actually a tool that's providing value on a daily basis. Well, they think that you're going to be cloud and cloud only. Well, if you're not serious about going to the cloud, if you're not serious about providing and extracting value from the cloud services that you've invested in, then you're never going to get there because if you keep saying 
we're hybrid, which we are, well, some people are going to hear, well, I, that means I'm on-prem. Well, yes, you're on-prem and you're in the cloud. So by being a cloud first, that means you're going to the cloud. But as you buy new on-prem gear, you need to make sure that you are buying on-prem gear that can look and feel just like your cloud experience. So that's the critical difference so that as we do edge computing, you know, I've often said we got to go to the cloud so we can go back on-prem. I have to be serious and understand how to do everything in a cloud. I have to understand DevOps, DevSecOps is the way to do things so that when I have newer on-prem purpose-built gear, it the experience is the same. That way I have one skill set. I don't have to have a bunch of server huggers and a bunch of cloud bubbas. I can have one operating force that knows how to work. And the only way that they would know that the experience is being served on-prem is if maybe they looked at the login or they looked at the, the name of what they connected to. But the user in consuming a resource or a service or having an experience should should not even know, should not care. They should just be able to connect and get access to service. Dr. Mark Taylor is Chief Technology Officer at U.S. Special Operations Command, speaking yesterday at Federal News Network's DOD Cloud Exchange. Still to come, a veterans advocacy group updates its guidance for the PACT Act. But first, lots of new developments on the whistleblower front thanks to this year's budget bill. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Omnibus Appropriations Bill enacted last year contains something called the Anti-Money Laundering Whistleblower Improvement Act. My next guest calls it the most important transnational anti-corruption whistleblower law since the Dodd-Frank Law in 2010. In fact, he helped get it passed. Stephen Cohn is a partner at the law firm Cohn, Cohn & Colapinto, and he joins me now. Steve, good to have you back. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And this whistleblower issue has been kind of your abiding life story, you might say. Tell us about the Anti-Money Laundering Whistleblower Improvement Act that was uh, just enacted. Sure. So the right of people outside the United States to blow the whistle, be anonymous and confidential, and qualify for an award has been growing since Dodd-Frank, because Dodd-Frank covered the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And it's really been a sea change for fighting international corruption. So we saw this. We then saw very large money laundering cases. And in fact, I represented uh, the whistleblower in what they believed to be the largest money laundering case ever, which was $240 billion laundered from Russia and former Soviet republics into Western banks over a 10 or 15 year period, and it's just a disgraceful situation. So we pushed and we advocated for a whistleblower law to cover money laundering. While well, you would need anonymity and confidentiality, which the law has, but the key was monetary rewards. Because if you're in Russia or you're in Denmark or you're in France, our retaliation laws don't apply. If you're in a country without a good rule of law, like Russia or 
many countries around the world. You know, you can be shot for being a whistleblower, especially for money laundering. So we pushed this really hard. We fought for two years. They put it was so significant at the end because we were able to point out that money laundering is how the Russians move their dirty cash by the billion. Sure. We're also able to show that's how you can find out where the oligarchs' money is. So at the very end of the entire legislative process, they put this bill onto the federal budget, and they decided not only to cover money laundering, but to cover sanctions, sanctions busting as well, all to help fight those trying to police Russian dirty money. And so in many ways, lift, then, you expect yes. this to aid federal law enforcement. Well, that's the key. So what this law does is it permits people with inside information, even if they reside outside the United States, to give that information to either the Department of Justice or the Department of Treasury, all designed to really incentivize the highest quality information from insiders to the law enforcement officials that have the ability to prosecute. And these people then would blow the whistle not to the company management, say, that's doing the money laundering that they might, say, begin with in the United States-based case, but to U.S. officials? Correct. So money laundering is really the heart of the worst forms of corruption. If you're going to pay a bribe, you don't put the bribe money in your own account under your name. Drugs, they don't put it under their name. They create phony accounts, phony identities. That's money laundering, hiding beneficial ownership. So money laundering gets terrorist financing, drugs, tax evasion, bribery. So you're really looking at some really dirty activities. But when it comes to Russia specifically, what we know from this very large money laundering case that came out of Donsky Bank is that the Russians wanted to move their money outside of Russia. In the Donsky case, it was proven that the Russian secret police, the FSB, was laundering money and Putin's family. So they wanted to move the money out. Now, once they, the money left Russia, it went through New York banks, but then it could go back into France, Italy. It could go anywhere. It's just laundered money where the true owners aren't known. So this is really strikes at the heart of corruption and that's why permitting people who are non-U.S. citizens to use this law and obtain rewards, it was really the heart of the reform that we obtained in December 2022. All right. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Cohn. He's a partner at Cohn, Cohn, Colapinto. And at the same time, you're reporting that the Justice Department is kind of dropping the ball in the headline words here for fraud cases. And it seems like under False Claims Act that whistleblowers of any sort, whether it's false claims or international money laundering, need to know that the case will actually get taken up. Exactly. So the problem with all whistleblower laws is sometimes the institutional resistance of bureaucracies. So the U.S. Department of Justice, in my view, is schizophrenic. We deal with DOJ prosecutors and, and investigators who are fantastic. 
They honor confidentiality. They're dedicated. They do a brilliant job. Well, there are others in the department that are clearly hostile to whistleblowers. And really, I mean, they're just, it's just bad news. We'll put it that way. The good part about this money laundering bill, and I hope it's a game changer. I hope it is implemented properly because although the Dodd-Frank Act permits anonymous and confidential whistleblowing to the SEC and, and, and to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, up until the AML law, the Justice Department was not required to accept confidential and anonymous whistleblowing information in any of the reward laws, including false claims, that they administer. Because they weren't required to have a whistleblower office, to ha accept anonymous complaints, there was no real coherency within the Justice Department how they dealt with whistleblowers. This law requires justice to accept anonymous complaints. Therefore, justice must implement rules to accept anonymous complaints, which means training of the officials of the Justice Department who will be interacting with these anonymous and confidential whistleblowers. Within the SEC, we saw that this level of legal requirement had a fantastic positive impact. It really forced that agency to have a effective whistleblower program. Sure. And just the a same quick, needs to happen with the Justice Department. And just a quick detail clarification, someone who's confidential and analysis and, and, and anonymous is also is known to the Justice Department. They're just not known to the party against no, which they're blowing the whistle. No. Oh. No, this is what's brilliant about the law. The government doesn't know who the whistleblower is. They have to work with an intermediary, which is a U.S. licensed attorney. So it's up to the government to develop the trust of the whistleblower. So they will voluntarily reveal their identity and become an effective cooperating witness. But the power has shifted where, where a whistleblower could walk into justice and they could really treat them, as I say, how they wanted to treat them. There was no coherent program. Some were fantastic, some were not. Now, if they come in under the AML program, the government doesn't know who their most important sources of information. Well, they don't know who these people are. So the government has to change its philosophy and its culture toward the whistleblower so they develop trust and they all work together. Every large case I have done, and we've had cases that have brought in millions and even billions in sanctions, at some point the government always knows who the whistleblower is. They have to. But that is built by trust and professionalism. And that is what we hope will drive this new law into making it super effective. And just a quick devil's advocate question before we close. I mean, the government needs to know that someone who is, say, a lawyer comes in representing an unknown whistleblower. I mean, there are going to be people that just try to game the system. And, you know, not every lawyer is maybe as scrupulous as you are. So how does the government know this is oh, not just yeah. a couple of people in collusion 
to stick it to some company they're mad at for reasons that have nothing to do sure. with illegality. Sure. So that is the beauty of requiring the licensed attorney because the licensed attorney has skin in the game. First, it's their reputation, potential bar charges. If some fraud or manipulation is going on, the government may not know who the whistleblower is, but they can hold the lawyer accountable. So it's to the, the lawyer is really required to do due diligence and present evidence that's honest. I mean, if there's any fraud done, you automatically lose any right to an award. If you lie, you lose your right to an award. If you try to get around certain rules, you lose your rights. So there's any lawyer who enters these programs as a representative is under tremendous pressure and legal obligation to be very honest. And that's what we see in the SEC program. There's almost, I don't know of any cases right now where a lawyer has been sanctioned for manipulation of the system and they've had 65,000 whistleblowers have entered the SEC program. And there's not one public case of a lawyer having a bar charge or any form of sanction. And you've got a new book about rules for whistleblowers coming out soon, by the way. That's correct. So rules for whistleblowers, which goes over everything a whistleblower needs to know from confidentiality. I have a whole section on the AML law. In fact, all of the whistleblower laws are discussed. It's coming out in June. And I really, you know, I think if you're going to blow the whistle, you really need to know how to do it right and what your rights are. Attorney Stephen Cohn is a partner at Cohn Cohn Calapinto. Thanks so much for that update. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a veterans advocacy group updates its guidance for the PACT Act. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The promise to address Comprehensive Toxics Act, the PACT Act, became law just a few months ago. It brought an expansion of services available to veterans and drew more veterans into eligibility. For a review and how things are going, we turn to a director at the National Veterans Legal Services Program, Rick Spataro. Mr. Spataro, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. And we should point out that as a Navy veteran, you are also a consumer to some degree of Veterans Affairs Services. Fair to say? That's fair to say. Um, I probably haven't taken advantage of them as much as I I could. Uh, Luckily, I'm pretty healthy. But, you know, my mission in life essentially is to help veterans get the benefits they deserve. It does help to have that experience as a veteran. And the PAC Act is pretty comprehensive. I mean, this was major legislation in terms of the effect. What are you seeing? I mean, I guess let's start with what veterans need to know in order to take advantage if, in fact, they are eligible for PACT Act benefits? Yes, this the PACT Act was a huge expansion of benefits primarily related to toxic exposures, as the name suggests. And it really impacts a lot of veterans who served in the Middle East, the Horn of Africa over the past really 20 years since you know September 11th. Uh, those are the ones that you see a lot in the news. Uh, a lot of the press has been about the increase in veteran benefits for those veterans. For example, many of the veterans who served in that area of the world, they are now entitled presumptively to benefits for many respiratory conditions, types of cancers, 
that there's been an increase in the incidence of those those disabilities and those veterans, presumably related to burn pits, other airborne hazards. And this law makes it a lot easier for those veterans to get disability benefits for those types of conditions. So that's that's the, the what we see a lot of. But it really went even beyond that. There's there's provisions in the PACT Act that help Vietnam veterans, for example. The law increases the number of areas where veterans are presumed to have been exposed to Agent Orange back in the 60s and 70s. And it even adds diseases that there's been a lot of scientific evidence are linked to Agent Orange. For example, hypertension. Hypertension is the biggest one. So it will increase the number of Vietnam era veterans who now can get benefits for hypertension. Well, just a Um, detail question here, because there was Agent Orange legislation, or maybe it was just rulemaking, a few years back that gave that presumptive coverage to anyone who had been, like, for example, in the planes that dropped Agent Orange and not merely the people on the ground where it might have been fuming around them. And then later on, there was the blue water for Navy veterans who had delivered the tanks or the canisters of Agent Orange. So did the PACT Act go beyond those two developments? Yes, it, it actually did, Tom. Uh, yeah, there's been a, a increase, a slow increase since the the mid-80s, the early 90s, of the number of diseases that have been linked to Agent Orange exposure, as well as the areas where we've discovered that Agent Orange was used and other similar dioxins. So this act, uh, when we're talking about Agent Orange in particular, um, it increases the presumption to Thailand, for example, um, where there's fights for many years about whether veterans who served in Thailand were exposed. Um, Now, anyone who served in Thailand during the Vietnam era will be presumed to have been exposed. But it also expands to areas like Guam, American Samoa, Laos, Cambodia. There's there's small areas in those locations, uh, uh, Johnston Atoll, where now the VA will presume that the veteran was exposed simply by setting foot in one of those locations. And how would you rate Veterans Affairs efficacy so far in getting the word out to people that might not be using Veterans Affairs, say, and need to know this? Um, I actually think it's been, it hasn't been too bad. You know, there are provisions in the PACT Act that actually require the VA to reach out to veterans who were previously denied some of the benefits that are now available to them. Um, And there has been a lot of press about it. But of course, you know, it's hard to reach everyone. So the more word we can get out, the better. Um, we want as many veterans who are eligible and entitled to these benefits to get them. You know, it's what they deserve from their service. We're speaking with Navy surface warfare veteran Rick Spitaro. He's now director of training and publications for the National Veterans Legal Services Program. And what do you hear from your members and your constituents about how fast the processing is going for those that apply for benefits under the PACT Act? Because we do know that the VA is starting to build up that backlog again because of it. Absolutely, Tom. Well, we know that the law went into effect. It was signed into law on August 10th. And the VA did need some time to ramp up to get their their systems in place. And actually, in the beginning of this year, in January, they started processing these claims. Um, We're, you know, it's still very early in the process. uh, So we're still we're still learning but we know they are working on them and it is going to increase their workload. There is going to, there are a lot more ben- veterans who are applying for benefits. We, I have heard that, that, you know, there are more app where the VA is seeing more applications because of the PACT Act. And we have some appeals in the system that were previously denied for benefits that are now presumptive in the PACT Act, for example. So 
it, it's affecting the appeals process as well. And we are seeing some of those claims granted. So we think it's, it's a good thing, uh, but it is going to take some time to get up to full speed for the VA. And speaking of appeals, I think in the latest book of the manual that you put out every year for veterans on the different programs for VA, it's been a few years since there was a modernization of the whole appeals process. I think it goes back to 2017. But now you've had some a good base of experience, a good database of experience on how that has all worked. What are you telling people this year? What are the learnings from the modernized appeal process? Well, there's there's been a lot. It actually... The law was passed in 2017, and it went into effect in February 2019. The VA still has a, a big backlog of cases from the old system. Um, they're, they're whittling that down, and I think they hope to have it, basically all the old cases done within the next year or two. But we are learning that the new system, there's good and bad to it. There are definitely some, some benefits. Veterans are seeing some good things because in some cases they are getting their claims adjudicated quicker by taking advantage of some of the new appeal options. But in other cases, there's, there's some difficulties that arise because in order to increase that efficiency in the VA, for example, if you go to the Board of Veterans Appeals, now things like the duty to assist don't apply at the board where they did in the past. So there, there's pros and cons. Overall, in the, in the long run, I think it will help veterans, um, but there's still some, some stumbling blocks. All right. Well, it sounds like it's kind of a never-ending battle, or I shouldn't say battle, but never-ending effort to align what people know with what VA is doing and then just keep VA prodded to do what they should in terms of timing and and speed. Because I don't think it's fair to say VA does try to fulfill what it's supposed to do under the law, but sometimes it just seems a little overwhelmed by the numbers. It's a huge bureaucracy, and there are millions of veterans. I mean, our nation has 22 million veterans. Many of them are disabled. And it is. It's hard to keep up with the number of veterans who are entitled to benefits and adjudicating those claims correctly. And you're always having turnover within the VA. Uh, the laws are very complicated. There's, you know, 35 books of case law from the Veterans Court alone. We have, uh, you know, thousands of pages of regulations, statutes from Congress, I mean, it's a very complicated area of law, and you have VA adjudicators who have relatively little experience who are making the first decisions on lots of claims. So we see a lot of errors. They do try to get it right, but, you know, it's just mistakes are to be expected when you have that complicated an area of law, which is, you know, one of the reasons we put out our Veterans Benefits Manual, to try to help advocates in particular understand what the laws are, ensure that they are making the right arguments for veterans, making sure that veterans know what the laws are so they can advocate for themselves as well. Um, but a lot of times with a complicated system, it's really key for the person representing the veteran to kind of lead that horse to water, as we like to say, sure. by showing them, look, here's what the law says. This is why I am entitled to benefits. I have the right evidence. Now, please grant my claim. And I guess if they have caller ID at VA and they see Spataro calling, they put somebody experienced on to answer that phone. You've been at this a long they time. Better. <laughs> All right. I, I have been. <laughs> Rick Spataro is Director of Training and Publications for the National Veterans Legal Services Program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me. Really appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
There's still time to register for the third and final day of Federal News Network's third annual DoD Cloud Exchange. Learn the latest and most crucial developments in moving cloud services to the tactical edge. Today, we'll feature IT officials from the Defense Intelligence Agency, National Security Agency, and others. Register now at federalnewsnetwork.com. The future look and feel of your office will depend more than on furniture or slick technology. That's because it'll likely include employees from other agencies. The trend General Services Administration officials say they're hearing is agency desire to share buildings, conference space, and training rooms as a way to save money and improve the employee experience. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the commissioner of the GSA's Public Building Service, Nina Albert. Agencies are willing and interested in having the conversation about when is the appropriate time to share space, uh, what types of spaces are you willing to share. Um, And so we're engaging with agencies on those topics. There's no clear decisions yet, but I just think about conference space. That's going to be of greater need in the future as people pull their teams together in off-sites or on, what, what we're now calling on-sites. But those types of conference spaces are uh, in high demand, and so are those the right types of spaces to be sharing? There's other kinds of spaces like training labs. Could agencies be sharing those types of spaces? And as a result, they could garner some you know, additional space efficiency. I think everyone's looking for that now. We know GSA has two challenges in front of it. Number one, you have the short-term challenge. A lot of the lease space is coming up in the next couple of years. Uh, and then there's agencies who have immediate needs today. Okay, what am I going to do? And then you have the longer-term goals. You mentioned uh, in, during the uh, ACT-IAC Shared Services Summit about you know the five-year plan. From the immediate perspective, what are some of those conversations? Are you seeing the consolidation of office space? Are you seeing agencies sharing more than maybe in the past? Uh, any trends you'd point to? Yeah, I mean, I think that pre-pandemic, we had been on a trajectory of consolidating office space. That's true of the federal government as it is true of um, the private sector. There's generally been consolidation of office space. So right now in the immediate, uh, we know that approximately 50% of our lease portfolio uh, is expiring in the next five years. Uh, We have been and continue to be very diligent about managing that space. So we engage agencies two years before their lease expirations and really work with them to determine what their longer-term needs are, whether should we should be uh, re-upping or taking on a new lease. Or what we're really seeing is what we're trying to promote is reuse or use of our existing federal space to consolidate those leases into. And you're seeing uh, that activity, it's really what I call block and tackle, you know, as leases come up, making really sound decisions uh, today that you can make uh, while we keep our eye to that long term and try and understand the trends that might affect the portfolio over the long run. I know there's been a big push over the years for agencies move into federal space to share you know, an office in, in downtown Philadelphia or Denver or Seattle or wherever versus leasing new. Any statistics come to mind or anything that kind of stands out to you that, that shows, hey, this is seen an uptick or even maybe an anecdote of, a, of an agency who 
had their own space and then decided, hey, you know what, we're going to share it because this makes more sense for us for these reasons. Yeah, I think it's really important that I clarify what we mean by sharing. So in the past, agencies would really look at, you know, whatever, their 20,000 square foot office need and then maybe go out with um, a request for a lease proposal for that 20,000 square foot need. What we're looking at now is really what I'll call multi-tenant buildings. So the federal building now becomes a building where there's multiple agencies in it. They still have distinctive and unique and enclosed uh, suites within that office building. So the building is shared, but the space itself is not. The model that's becoming interesting to agencies is what I'll call federal co-working, which is in fact shared space, where we would have all the amenities of flexible space in one suite and maybe multiple agencies who only have like a small team, for example, in City X. They still want to have access to the safety and security and access to an office, but they don't need an entire suite to themselves and they're willing to share with another agency that might also have a small team need. So that's what we're exploring right now is federal co-working, and that's really the purest definition of shared space. Towards trends, I mean, right now we're seeing people act when a decision is required, for example, a lease expiration. Uh, we're seeing a lot of agencies also look more comprehensively across their portfolio to see how to responsibly uh, consolidate and save money, but also deliver a great experience uh, for their employees and also serve the American public. But in general, uh, I'd say the trend that's uh, of most interest to me is uh, really how to take advantage of this openness that everybody has to try and really figure out the best delivery model for agency missions and how can space support that. And so we're exploring all different types of space patterns, whether it's multi-tenant buildings, whether it's co-working space and others, to make sure that we understand uh, where the value is. Commissioner Albert, I want to swing back around. You mentioned the Workplace 2030. GSA has an innovation lab about uh, that you guys stood up about a month ago, and I was happy to be at the opening of that and then saw all the cool technology rolling out and the furniture and the, the new way of thinking. It's been roughly a month or so, maybe a month and a half. What are some of the initial feedback you're getting? What are some of the thoughts now that you've had this out for agencies to come and test drive? Amazing response. Uh, first of all, I think people are really ex excited to see what's new and what's next. And I can't even tell you how much energy there is around just that prospect. So we have a backlog, I think, of about 120 tours, different agencies wanting to come and see, but it's not limited to the federal government. This is the first workplace innovation lab of its kind in the country. So we're seeing private sector uh, partners wanting to come and take a look at it and see what we're doing. We're also hosting other governments to come and check it out. Why are they so excited about it? I think it's because um, people really want to understand how flexibility is manifesting in space, right? Usually when you're building out real estate, there's something fixed about it. And the furniture manufacturers, technology providers are all really trying to figure out how do you build in as much flexibility as possible because we know that the next several years are going to require that. Anyway, we've just gotten, like I said, we've got a backlog. Our team's really both excited but very, very busy uh, cycling 
pulling people through there. And I would say that the most positive, the types of response that we get are people's interest in having their teams experience it because they want their employees to have access to the ideas of what's next and give input into that. And so that's where I think folks are really most uh, most excited is that employee engagement around the workplace of the future. I know it's only been a short amount of time, and this may seem like a what have you done for me lately question, but any changes you can see coming up? Anything you've said, oh, okay, let's let's do that in July or September or whenever because there's a, either demand for it or at least you've seen some sort of like signal from you getting the same question over and over. Anything come, come yet or is it still maybe a bit too early? A little bit too early for right now. Um, the member I told, or I don't know if you remember, but um, the Workplace Innovation Lab has two purposes. The first is to be a showcase for new furnitures, fixtures, and technology. But there's another component to it, which is our piloting federal co-working space. And so that is a, I think it's about a six month pilot. And so that's what we're really testing for is to see what the demand, the interest and the need would be for that kind of space. Because I think that that could be a truly innovative uh, approach for federal real estate in the future. Nina Albert, Commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration, speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, cloud computing, it's great until you can't connect. Then what? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.